Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. Well, if we had to summarize the book of Hebrews, uh, the point of this letter is to assure us that Christ is sufficient. That's a very simple way of summarizing Hebrews in one sentence, the sufficiency of Christ. Now, when we say the sufficiency of Christ, we might wonder what does that exactly mean? Because we can talk about Christ being in the heavenly temple, Christ residing on Mount Zion. We can think of Christ residing in the most holy place. So on the one hand, we could reduce this down to an easy believism, where it just simply means I just believe this, I have life, it doesn't really impact my life, and I can be rather indifferent to my Lord. But that misses the call in this text for us to obey our Savior. There is a call for us to truly obey our Lord. So this could mean then that in my obedience I prove my worthiness to truly be a, a true and worthy disciple of Christ. That I'm faithful enough and that I am one who will truly have redemption. The problem with this is it contradicts what we've learned in chapter 4 that we are redeemed in Christ and we can come before his throne of grace in the confidence that Christ is the one who has taken away our sin and has made us alive. This can also be an assurance then that we are assured that Christ has done enough and as Christ has done enough, we will enter into heaven and yet we wonder then, how do we know if we're really going to make it? And so we end up sort of waiting for the great surprise wondering if Christ really has secured me. Because we can talk about this in theory, but then say, well, maybe there's no way for me to fundamentally know if this Christ is my Christ. And so it's important then that we understand what it means that Christ is sufficient. Because it could raise a bunch of problems in our own mindset. We may not want to come before him. We may not trust him. We may wonder how faithful we really need to be and if our faithfulness is what will ultimately make us right before God. And so what does it mean and why is it significant that we are called disciples of the Most High, we're called to honor our God, and we have a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Why is that so important? Well, as we consider this, we'll see rules for the priests in general, Rules for Christ. And lastly then, as he drives home the point towards the end of this, this section of Christ's superior priesthood. And so let's begin with the rules for a priest. Now, as you notice, there's a heading in the ESV where it starts at 4.14, starting this section. Last time we looked at verses 4 through 16 as a transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5 seeing those verses as important. And remember what we learned there is that we have to cling to Christ. We hold fast our confession. So this means that consciously right now, we cling to Christ. We have to be conscious of that. We may say, well, maybe I'm too weak uh, to cling to him, or maybe I'm too broken to really find confidence in him. Well, 
The author of Hebrews gives the assurance that he can sympathize with our weakness. In other words, he knows the frailty of the human condition. He not only has overcome sin in terms of his redemption, but he's the one who enables and empowers us to persevere in the context and midst of our sin as we bring our requests and our confessions to him. Because again, what was the struggle here, at least that we perceive for the people in this letter? That they are used to the tangible priest. I mean, you could look a priest in the eye. You can say to the priest, man, I struggle with this, or I messed up here, and boy, you know, I still struggle with this addiction or this thing going on. And the priest can say, yes, I struggle with those things too. And so you look the priest in the eye, and you feel like you have sympathy. Well, the author of Hebrews here is beginning that concept of saying, don't minimize the significance in the need for Christ. He also can sympathize with your weakness. He's not going to look down on you. He wants you to come before him like the precedent of the Old Testament of looking the priest in the eye, confessing your sin. And so we can't minimize the significance and power of prayer and the significance of confession before our Lord. So verses 14 through 16 of chapter 12 are basically setting that context. And so now as we make that transition from chapter 4 of how Christ brings us into rest, now we say, okay, well, I'm in the wilderness, as chapter 4 tells me. The wilderness is a time of testing. How do I know that my priest Christ is sufficient to lead me through this wilderness time and is actually superior to the priesthood that Israel had. How do I know that? Well, that's what the author is addressing now. And so, generally, he wants us to understand two things about a legitimate priest. First, he is from among his brothers. So it's not a priest who just comes into the community that has undergone some sort of special sanctification or some sort of special perfection in and of himself. He's from among the brothers. That's the first standard, the first criteria of what a priest must meet. The second criteria is that a priest must be legitimately called by God. So these are two things generally that qualify a priest for service. From among his brothers, he's human, knows his people, not better than his people, uh, understands the weakness of the human condition. Secondly, legitimately called by God. So now we go through this and say, okay, why is this so significant? Well, the author of Hebrews is now laying out what the work of the priest is to do. We know the general qualifications. We know that as he's called from, his, called from among his brothers, called by God, we find that he is one who offers sacrifices and gifts. So notice that this is not a one-time offering for sin or, or that we basically have one sin and then we, we, we have to just say, well, that, that's it. You know, we, we've expired. And it's, it's done. It's finished. There, there's no more uh, atonement for that. Sacrifices for sins. In other words, the ongoing problem in our human condition from the fall is we continue to sin. So, so we can't come into this mindset of thinking, I've made the one-time sacrifice, 
And as a one-time sacrifice before the priest is offered, it means that all my sins taken away and I, I lead a perfect life. The author of Hebrews is saying that's still the fundamental problem of the human condition. We commit sins. Not just one sin, but multiple sins. Not just Adam's sin, but we actually sin against God. So it's a call for us to be humble and to understand that the priest himself continually offered these sacrifices. Now the author of Hebrews will play on this and build on this later in the letter, but right here it's introduced. There's continual sacrifices offered for continual sins. That's what we find as a precedent. But we also find that the priest is one who has weakness. Uh, <coughs> and so this weakness is telling us the problem of the priest's human condition. We find with Aaron, he has to go through a series of sacrifices, offer a bull uh, for himself and his household, we, we, we find in Exodus. And so here we, we have, okay, so there's an inferiority of the priesthood, that, that even the priest needs to offer sacrifices. But there's two things that are beneficial in this in terms of the priest's work. That he offers sacrifices for the ignorant and the wayward. Now these are basically the two types of sins, plural, that we commit. The ignorant would be basically the sins, or at least it's describing the sins we commit without knowing. These are things we, we do. Uh, we're not really conscious that we do them. We're actually, it's depressing to think we're that sinful. That we actually commit sins without realizing we're sinning. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, the, the sacrifices took care of those sins as well. Even though we didn't confess them, even though the Spirit hasn't convicted us of them at this point or, or brought them to light, there, there's still a sacrifice for them. Now the second type of sin is a dangerous sin. This is a wayward. This is a, basically a way of saying uh, where one is, is starting, you know, you think of Psalm 119. Keep me on the path of righteousness. May I not go left, may I not go right. The wayward sin is a conscious sin that we commit. This is where we say, well, I, I know this is wrong and I know it's sinful, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's fun. I think it, it gives me joy or, or at least it looks like it gives me a moment of pleasure. You know, like Proverbs, so important. Uh, talking about how we think the moment of that sin is so enticing, you know, especially for the young man and adultery. And, oh boy, if I just go wayward against the Lord. And again, that's symbolic of something bigger. You know, Scripture uses this in the sense of going away from the Lord, away from the right path. So this is that consciousness, that conscious sin. This can be addiction, where we continually want to fulfill or fill this addiction, thinking this will give us satisfaction. The reality is it doesn't. I love what Proverbs says, you know, can a man carry a fire close to his chest and not get burned? Well, that tells us about sin. We think about a dog returning to its vomit, as wisdom literature tells us, that this is what it's like for us going back to our sin. So this is what <clears throat> Hebrews is telling us, that we come before the priest owning this reality. And so the call is for us, honestly, just in a general sense and a point of application, to come before our Lord and confess honestly as a very starting point of dealing with this sin, Lord, to my shame, I think this sin will give me more joy than following you. 
I think this sin gives me more fulfillment than doing your will, walking in your path. Lord, convict me. And then we also have with the ignorant sins, what are we, what are we instructed from wisdom literature? Show me, expose them, convict me, open my heart. In other words, Lord, bring these sins to the surface so I'm not continually feeding this, this immorality within myself that can potentially lead me to wander from the path, right? And so this is the invitation for us instead of secretly hiding and trying to present a, a perfect image of ourselves before God. It's coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, this is where I am broken and sinful. This is where I find my joy and I am ashamed of it and it is immoral and you need to take it away. Work on me. Do not leave me on this path. That's the invitation. That's the start of where we're going here. And so a priest, as you look him in the eye, the temptation is saying, well, this priest is one who can sympathize with this and know this. How can Christ really do this? Well, this is where the author of Hebrews drives home the reality. No one takes this honor upon himself. So in other words, this is where we're driven home that the priest who is called to this task to represent the people before God is legitimately called by God. It appeals to the precedent of Aaron. Uh, we can find uh, the call of Aaron and, and where we find him interacting with Moses and where he goes with Moses is involved with the Exodus and how Aaron and the priesthood, even in his own sin with the golden calf misleading Israel, we see there... Uh, his own inferiority as a priest in humanness and insufficiency. But nevertheless, the author of Hebrews is not bringing all that to our attention. He's just saying, what's the precedent of a priest? The precedent of the priest, he comes from his people, he's called by God, he understands our weaknesses, we can look him in the eye, we can confess our sin, and he's the one who offers a sacrifice, the one who prays on our behalf, and the one who continues to show that visible care. So now we say, okay, well, what about Christ then? We understand the priesthood generally. What about Christ? Well, we find that Christ did not exalt himself. If you want to know the theology of Hebrews, as he'll go on, uh, where he says in verse 8, although he's a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. For Hebrews, it's important to understand the twofold nature of Christ's sonship. On the one hand, as he begins uh, in the introduction, as we covered, that he's the exact radiance, the exact glory of God. He's the exact character of God. So the attributes of, of God make up Christ. So he's son because of who he is, just in his person, just by his nature, he is son. But now the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that Christ is also son because he's proved his worthiness by submission to the Father. So he's son by his nature, and he's son by his obedience, by his, his suffering unto glory. And so Christ then is not <clears throat> appointed to do this and to take this honor upon himself. He's called by the Father, and he does the Father's will. And the author of Hebrews takes two psalms and, and pieces these together. The first citation is from Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, this is the beginning of Christ. Now, you put Psalm 2 in the context of the Psalter. Well, what's the context here? Well, the context is the nations 
riling up against God, conspiring against God, trying to make war with God. God sits in heaven and he laughs at them. And, and what is the ultimate agent of war that God promises? His son. His son's going to come. His son's going to slaughter the enemies. And his son is going to be triumphant. And so right here is the assurance that the son of God is the one who has triumphed over all the nations, over all the powers. So the author of Hebrews wants us to understand, do you understand who you draw near to? This is the triumphant one. This is the one who has overcome that was promised already in Psalm 2. Christ takes us upon himself. Now this begetting is speaking of a, a twofold begetting. On the one hand, we say begotten from eternity, right? That's our confession. And what that means is that Christ is truly son of God by his nature. Here, this begotten you is Christ's entrance into history when he takes on the flesh. And he goes and he engages into war uh, and, and goes and he conquers and he overpowers. And so this, this is calling to our attention that there's going to come a time when the sun's from eternity, the sun takes on flesh, he engages in war, and he's triumphant. So he's king, he's triumphant, he's warrior. But then we move on to Psalm 110. Now, if you remember, when we covered Psalm 110 and Lord's Day 19, I didn't spend uh, much time or any time at all talking about Melchizedek, so I wanted to take it up here in Hebrews. But remember what we learned from Psalm 110 as it builds on Psalm 2. In Psalm 110, you have this statement at the beginning that the people willingly offer themselves. I mean, this is such a profound statement. Because when you think about foreign powers, why, why do we submit mostly to our government if we're honest? Well, it's because we don't want the consequence of not submitting, right? So it's, it's better to follow the rules and, and to not bear the consequence than to rebel. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're submitting, we're, we're going forward, but we're not really doing it out of joy all the time. Maybe there's times we are, but not all the time. The point of, of Christ in the Melchizedekian priesthood is we're joyfully coming before him. We're joyfully hearing what we heard from Matthew eleven twenty eight. Take my yoke upon you. We're saying we want your yoke. Guide us. Grant us wisdom. Lead us. Right? That's what Psalm 110 is calling to our attention. And remember where Psalm 110 ended where he bows down and he drinks from the water of life. This is where when we sang from 110b, uh, this is where the, the psalm ended. It, it ended with that verse. And remember we said the significance of that as he's bowing down. We're seeing this as a river of life. Uh, we think of Ezekiel's temple. We think of Psalm 63. We think of Psalm 42 as a deer pants for water. Psalm 63, longing for water in the wilderness. Uh, we think of the woman at the well when Christ interacts with her. He says, you want living water, right? Water will you never thirst again. The river of life. And so this is a true nourishment that we have to see coming from this priest. Now getting on to the order of Melchizedek. When we talk about how this priest entering history as a begotten son of God who has come as a warrior, now he comes in the order of Melchizedek, teaches us something else rather profound. Because this means king of righteousness. That's what the name literally means. 
And he's priest of Salem, priest of Jerusalem. Remember we said that means a vision of peace. So he's king of righteousness, ruling over the vision of peace or vision of shalom. In other words, this is a priest king who brings his people into the true rest of God in the heavenly city. And so this priest being in the order of Melchizedek, he introduces here from Genesis 14. That's where we find this priest mentioned. And we've mentioned before, but the author of Hebrews is exploiting something from Genesis. A significant figure in Genesis always has a beginning genealogy and a record of death, right? You, you see that with Abraham. You see that with the patriarchs. When you transition to a new uh, history in Genesis, it tells us where this person began, where this person ended. There's a genealogy making that transition. There is no genealogy for Melchizedek. So the implication is he's a priest king who is. He's the one who presides as king over Jerusalem and priest over Jerusalem. He's just there. He just exists. He has no beginning. He has no end. And so the author of Hebrews is now introducing a concept to us where he's saying, listen, we think of the Levitical priesthood, what do we see there? Well, we see some priests that weren't great. We think of Eli, not, not a great priest, sons, uh, not doing a great job. We think of exploitations. Uh, we think of the stress of a priest coming and going. They, they live and they die. They don't continue. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, let's think about the priest that Christ is. The one who has entered history, has no beginning of days, and has no end of days. The one who started in glory, humbled himself, and then is exalted to glory. That is the priest who represents us. So he understands suffering and struggle. And so here's the, the introduction of this priest king. Now we build from verses 7 through 10. And now we answer the question of, well, how do we know that Christ's priesthood is, is superior then? We know the, the fallenness of the priests, verses 1 through 4. We know the Melchizedekian priesthood, verses 5 and 6. But now if Christ is truly the God-man, how do we know that Christ really understands our suffering? How can we really come before him with a true vulnerable spirit, a true vulnerable heart, flaying it open before the Lord, truly wanting his grace and mercy. Well, notice then we have this recollection. In the days of his flesh. So he's calling to our attention, not just the eternal nature of Christ, but he's speaking of now the day when he was begotten, when he enters history in this unique way, taking on the flesh. He offers up prayers and supplications. This is what a priest does. Prays and makes these supplications on behalf of individuals. But notice how he does this. With tears and loud cries. In other words, this is anguish. Much like what Luke captures in chapter 22. The anguish of Christ. Again, that debated verse in verse 44. If his sweat became like great drops of blood. Individuals point out the reality of how capillaries can open up in the midst of anguish. And as capillaries open up, uh, blood and sweat can mix together. Uh, the, the issue in the text is that it's a simile. It's like great drops of blood. The point is that it's like Christ has a gaping wound. That's the picture. And so his sweating is just as gushing. His hair soaked. 
His garments are soaked. It's visible that he is in turmoil. The light drops of blood is pointing to the event of the cross. It's calling to our attention, why is Christ in turmoil? He's going to shed his blood. And so Luke's drawing these, these, these things together so we understand the nature of Christ's priesthood. So here is Christ offering up prayers and supplications, but ultimately setting the, the boundary here when we think back to Luke of how Christ is offering up himself. Not offering a bowl like Aaron. Aaron has to offer a bowl for himself and his family. Christ is offering up himself. Now Christ has a uniqueness. A priest is heard because of his office, because of his preparation, right? A priest has to go through the proper protocol before entering into the most holy place at one time a year. And as a priest does that, he is heard because of his preparation. So he's offered the right sacrifice. He's put on the proper garments. He's followed the proper protocol. But Christ, solely because of his obedience and his reverence, he is heard. And so what we learn up to this point is two things that are rather profound, at least, in terms of our existence. On the one hand, we will never know the torment and the toil of hell. We'll never know that as we're in Christ. Praise be to God for that. The other truth in terms of this life, now we will learn this in the life to come, <clears throat> but in terms of this life, we will never know the glory of heaven in this life. In other words, we, we will never know what it is like to truly be in the presence of God. We, we have a taste of it. We, we taste it in the spirit. We, we have some concepts in scripture, but we won't know the fullness until we get there. And this tells us how glorious heaven is. That Christ, when you think of John 17, is willing to suffer through the cross, through hell, to enter into heaven. And so if, if we want assurance that struggling in the Christian life is worthwhile, we can say, I know heaven is glorious. I, I have a taste of it in the spirit. And I can be assured in the confidence of my priest, it's far more glorious than I can even comprehend. To enter into the full vision of peace and the presence of God must be so glorious that Christ is willing to suffer through hell to return to that glory, as he says in John 17, verse 4. It tells us the beauty of what Christ has secured. Now, as he goes on, he tells us that Christ is one who has learned obedience. He knows suffering. He knows the desire to turn away, right? He understands what temptation is. Now, he, he did this without sin, but I always go back to Strimple's point, and I want to drive this home. The only systematics professor always said, if we sin, we just confirm who we are, sinners. Now, it's not that we minimize sin, or, or we're reducing the problem of sin in that statement, but ultimately, we, we don't fundamentally change our nature. If Christ sins, it means God fails. His nature fundamentally changes, and it means God's a liar. And so for Christ... To be here, we can be assured Satan is throwing everything he can at God because this is his chance to undermine him. So when we read of this obedience, we cannot minimize the nature of Christ's suffering and what he did on our behalf. He obeyed perfectly. He was tempted to be distracted. 
He was tempted to turn away, but he did not turn away. He did it perfectly. That he is the one who then, being made perfect, in other words, it's not that Christ wasn't perfect, but the point of being made perfect is now in the resurrection that confirms the success of his mission. What does Christ win for us? Notice what the text tells us. It is so profound. Eternal salvation. This means that what we taste in this life only gets better. As we conform to Christ, it only gets better. That as we transition from this age to the age to come, we are going to experience the fullness of what the vision of shalom truly is, heaven itself. This is why we continue to push forward in the power of Christ. Going on then, as he says in verse 10, he's designated by God as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this is where he brings it right around and he says, listen, we as humans, by the temptation of Satan or in our own human frailty, are tempted to minimize the significance of Christ and his priesthood. We're tempted to say, well, that was easy for Christ. He's a God-man. How hard is it really? Hebrews is saying, you don't understand what your Lord did for you, do you then, if that's what you're asking? Because your Lord has entered history, taken on the flesh, knows what it is like to walk on this earth in the context of a sinful, fallen world, knows what it is like to enter into an intense wrestling match and scuffling with Satan himself, knows what it is like to be tempted to walk away from what the Lord is holding out from him. And he was successful at every point of the way. So the author of Hebrews is saying, why would you want to come to a priest who has to first prepare himself to make himself worthy to come into the presence of God has to offer a sacrifice for himself, don the proper clothing and the proper order, and if he forgets to do something, he's killed. He's inferior, and he's killed not because of his obedience, but because of his disobedience, his, his ignorance. And he's saying, what do we have? We have a priest king who has established an eternal salvation, who offers himself without any preparation in terms of offering sacrifices. Now, his preparation is obeying and being the perfect sacrifice where Pilate becomes the ironic priest pronouncing the perfection of Christ and the innocence of Christ. And as Christ goes to the cross, he takes away our sins. So when we go back to the beginning, the author of Hebrews is saying, we can come before this priest. We can bring our prayers we can bring our struggles. We can bring the turmoil and the pain of this age. And he's not going to cast us away. He's not going to look down on us. He's not going to tell us to go away. I don't care about you. He's not going to say, oh, that's nothing. You know what I did? No, this is a priest who wants to hear from us. And he wants us to bring our garbage, our sins, our immorality before his throne of grace and say, Lord, I want this gone continue to work on me, rip it out of my heart, tear it away from me. I, I don't trust you. I don't live in the confidence you're my shield and defender. Convict me of this. I am one who continues to rest in my own self in these ways. And Lord, take these things away from me. 
This is what the Lord is inviting us to do. And then as we learn from the Psalms, open my heart, make me tender to your purpose. Show me my sin. Show me where I am uh, ignorant of my ways. In other words, continue to convict me and work on me is a fundamental request that we bring before him. So when we ask that question then in terms of Hebrews, what does it mean that Christ is sufficient? It means that Christ has done everything to take away our sin. This isn't easy believism. The, the people who receive this letter don't trust that, don't believe that. But the call is for us to really believe Christ has done everything necessary to take away our sin. It also means with this call for us to obey him, as the text tells us. It's not for us to be more faithful, but it says Christ gives that call in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, taking the yoke of Christ upon us, wanting to learn from him, wanting to be discipled by him, believing that in the power of his spirit, he continues to lead and disciple and bring us along. And so we want to submit to him more and more. That's the call, that's the desire, that's the request. The point is then, ultimately, we empty ourselves of hope in our own strength, in our own flesh. We empty ourselves of the hope of this age. And we cast our hope and conform to the assurance that the great Melchizedekian priest has secured us in the city of Jerusalem, the vision of Shalom, and what is more, that he leads us and holds us through this wilderness time. That when we face the temptations as we've seen with Israel, to test God, to say, can you really be a shield and defender? Can you really provide? Can you really shepherd me through this? That's the temptation we have. We see that as a precedent. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't go there. Think about the Melchizedekian priesthood. Let your mind meditate and, and rest in this promise and think about the implications of an eternal priesthood that never ends, of a priest who can sympathize and yet is perfect, a priest who wants to hear from his people, and a priest who has truly offered up tears or, or supplications with tears in the midst of the suffering of this age. Let us see then the sufficiency of Christ let us desire to live more consistently as his disciples and let us desire to truly take his teaching and light yoke upon us that we conform to his will and do not conform to ours. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, May the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Mm -hmm.